Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, NBC technology correspondent Jacob Ward on artificial intelligence and its perils. And when you look even across the people who, in theory, should be able to evaluate these systems and how they make the decisions, even they have no idea how they work. Is it actually acceptable to me that my unconscious instincts are being played upon by these companies? I've been to a dinner party where the social credit system in China, in which how you behave online affects whether or not you can get a, everything from a bank loan to a train ticket. Uh, you know, that system was described to this room full of, of San Francisco entrepreneurs, and half of them were like, that's horrible and Orwellian. And the other half were like, we should have that here. That's a great idea. Jake Ward, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. It is a true pleasure to be talking to you because you've been popping in and out of various intersections of science, technology, and social and political choices for for quite some time. I first remember coming across your work when you were editor-in-chief of Popular Science magazine. Greatest job in magazines. You know, and what a storied history. I mean, people, when they think about publications that have a a long institutional record, they will often go to, at least in our circles, The Atlantic, you know, which Mm -hmm. was publishing prominent people 150 years ago, or of course, the standards of the newspapers like New York Times and Washington Post. But Popular Science, I mean, am I right that Popular Science was publishing everyone from Darwin to Asimov to Curie? I mean, what an amazing publication over time. Yeah, I mean, an amazing place to work. It'll be 150 years old next year. Mm. And uh, I'm uh, very proud that my colleague Corinne Iozio is now the the editor-in-chief and she plans to see it through uh, that uh, anniversary. So yeah, it's an amazing place to work. I mean, when I, when I first came to work there, you know, I associated it as so many people did, I think with, you know, the enthusiasms of being a young person, you know, when you're 13, you read a lot about, you know, you read about flying cars and popular science, and that is definitely yeah. a huge chunk of it. But, but then you look back across its history, and yeah, I mean, you know, it you, it, it it reflected its time. Um, it was full of, uh, you know, incredible, you know, sort of like quick money making schemes and how to fix your car and all that stuff at a time when America was in incredible economic. Uh, uh, dire straits during the 30s, you know, uh, during uh, World War II, there's all kinds of scary racist stuff on the cover depicting the Japanese in, in this way or that way. You know, it, it reflected the zeitgeist uh, of, of this very specific kind of engineering culture in America for years and years and years. But yeah, all the way back to Darwin, Asimov, um, you know, we had, uh, I, I, I was looking at stuff like um, Werner von Braun was on the uh, payroll for a while as a as a sort of like we'd send him all over the place like to go look at penguins and you know do cutesy stuff at, you know at a time when people did not understand his background mm-hmm. uh, fully you know but anyway so yeah a fascinating place to work and for me um, uh, a very much a place where I like learned to uh, think of technology as as a way of decoding human society because our dreams and our ambitions and the things that we built, you know, I, I just realized was a way of of seeing into who we are and who we imagine ourselves to be. And so, yeah, a fabulous place to work. 
I would love to do a sociological map of the influence of popular science because I know in my case, I, I did not go into science or technology or anything remotely close to it, but my lifelong interest in scientific issues ranging from you know astrophysics to psychology, I got to say, popular science must have been a part of it because like you said, some of the eye-catching items I remember as a teenager, long before you were editor-in-chief, so I can't mm. credit you, but- no, no. I remember the the eye candy got me, you know, so it was the story about the flying car or something like that. And that was the gateway drug to then reading the other articles in the magazine that were perhaps less sexy, but actually said, huh, I I didn't know we actually were were getting to an understanding of that. Mm, and mm-hmm. and I think popular science did that, at least at the time that that I was reading it as a teenager, probably did that better than anyone else out there. I think yeah. It's probably odd then that in, at least in the time you were there, where I came across you being editor in chief was because of the magazine shutting down comments on articles yes, and hearing you on NPR or on BBC or something like that, that, that actually became one of the most popular, if you will, one of the most popular episodes of popular science was this decision to shut down comments on internet stories. Uh, talk through that decision a little bit and what it said about the times. Yeah, it was such uh, a, a uh, sort of influential episode in my experience. So I, this was, I think, 2012, 20, yeah, 2012, I think. And basically we had, uh, you know, my uh, online director came to me one day um, Suzanne Labar, very brilliant colleague of mine, came to me and said, um, uh, "The you know we are getting all kinds of crazy comments um, under our articles, and we do not have the bandwidth to patrol them properly because, as with all magazines, you know we just we were we were built just we had just enough people to put out content, but not enough people to moderate content in any real sense." And she brought to my attention a study that had just come out that showed that people basically had no ability in their recollection to distinguish between comments that they had read and the content of the article itself. And so she had shown me a bunch of examples in which an article was about how to best prevent sexually transmitted diseases. And then comments were saying all sorts of pseudoscientific gibberish about how, you know, the the way in which STDs move through the body, you know, they move in a, at a size that's too small for a condom to stop and blah, 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 blah. And she said, you know, I think people are probably confusing our content with the comments. Mm-hmm. The comments are crazy. And some of the craziest and most read comments are in some cases a couple of years old. So we have no ability to even go through today's comments and moderate them much less years and years worth. And I said, well, this is a real problem. She said, yeah. And I was like, well, what, what do you think we should do? She said, I think we should turn off the comments. And I said, I think you're absolutely right. And so I made that decision and uh, I got into all kinds of trouble from my uh, bosses at the time who obviously saw it as a, as a thing that would, you know, that it was literally turning off engagement, which nobody mm-hmm. wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got hauled out into the public eye to defend this decision. You know, I, like you said, I had to go on NPR and the rest of it, you know, um, uh, Steve Inskeep, you know, grilled me on it. And he said, well, aren't you stifling scientific inquiry? Isn't the whole idea of science that we're supposed to have, you know, informed, open conversation about these things. And I said, 
I think that's true, but we are not equipped to really, uh, you know, to peer review people's comments in the way that real science is supposed to. Mm -hmm. And then here's the incredibly naive thing I said, David, I said, uh, instead we're going to push this to platforms that do have the bandwidth to moderate comments effectively. And that is Twitter (laughs) and Facebook, right? (laughs) You can imagine what a sucker I was to think that that might've been their mission. Well, to be, to be fair, you know, the idea was readers won't be able to engage on the topics we write about if we shut off comments section. And your reaction right. very reasonably is, oh, hell no. You know, we got we got Google Plus, we got Facebook, we've got Twitter there. People can write in like everybody used to when That's they right. wanted to engage with an article. We're not shutting down audience engagement on these topics. We're merely saying that we want the articles to convey their meaning without the the bias that comes from a toxic, and it was often toxic, comment section. That's right. And, we, you know, this was everything from, you know, we had people, you know, uh, critiquing the whole idea of evolution to climate change to uh, the earth being round, you know, it was all that stuff. And right. and I think I, I assumed that some of it would naturally shake itself out in the marketplace of ideas on a platform like that. <laughs> but I also naively assumed, and this is just how little I understood about how um, these platforms were built, that they would patrol actually dangerous stuff, racist, sexist stuff, or stuff that contradicts public health findings or whatever it was, right? And so little did I know mm-hmm. how uh, that is not how those platforms work. And and that um, by, I, I had no other option. I, it's not like I think I should have hung on to the comments and we should have somehow mm-hmm. Um, better patrolled them, you know, that I could have somehow done that better. Like I didn't really have any choice. We did not have the res- the resources to, to take responsibility for these comments. But, but I, in retrospect, the tidy solution I had come up with was not a solution. And in fact, presaged what has become the basis of, uh, you know, my second career here as a, as a broadcaster, which is all about looking at the ways in which these you know, the platforms we build, the technology we build turns out to reflect all sorts of scary human behaviors and in fact winds up amplifying them, especially when uh, they are built in pursuit of profit and most of them are. So uh, for me, that was a, it's so uh, astute of you to to bring up that episode because it was such a formative thing. I literally went from a naive believer that the tomorrow is going to be better and technology is always going to make things better to a much more, uh, I don't know, cynical is not quite the right word, but a much more, uh, uh, I would say, uh, sharp observer of the profit motives and the incentive structures that have gotten us where we are today. And it, it turns out with retrospect, what a canary in the coal mine that episode was because yeah. so many publications had chosen by 20, 2013 or so, had, had chosen not to tackle that issue yet. They just let the comment sections go and right. to be fair, there are institutions that still do have comment sections, although my limited experience jumping into them is that it's probably similar to jumping into a sewer because although I don't jump into sewers often, that's how I feel when I go into the comment sections, even the mm-hmm. ones that are supposedly moderated and regulated. So it, it points to that issue. You said, well, we just didn't have the resources to to do the comment section effectively. And what we've seen in the nine or 10 years since is even the institutions that do devote resources to it 
still face many of these issues for some of the oh, reasons yeah. you've described. Um, so it really was a warning shot about the dangers of so many interesting overlays. It's the overlay of expertise versus populism in one, you know, the pseudoscience element you mentioned is sure. people coming in and saying, well, the horizon looks flat to me. So the earth can't be, can't be round. Right. I've um, never met anybody with HIV. How could it possibly exist? Exactly. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. and those overlays make it difficult, but they all do point back to at some level, fundamental human decision-making and psychology. Sure. And that's where a couple of years ago, I saw you again, hosting the Hacking the Mind miniseries on mm -hmm. PBS, which I think it's a couple of years ago now. Yep. What was, that was a different experience, obviously, than publishing a magazine. What What was the experience like working on a televised miniseries yeah. for an institution like PBS? Well, so I had left Popular Science in 2013 to go join Al Jazeera. I basically was picked out of a cattle call at Al Jazeera mm -hmm. um, to be a science and technology correspondent for the American channel and then wound up working for Al Jazeera English. And um, that was an incredible, uh, let's see, four-year run there, really fascinating experience. And then um, I was offered this opportunity to go uh, host this show, basically this producer, Carl Biker, who remains a, a lifelong friend, just a really uh, influential person in my life. Mm -hmm. He basically said, listen, I'm, I'm, you've never met me, but I want to um, come out to Oakland where I live and meet you and walk around and let's see if we like each other. And I said, okay. And so he did. And we walked around a cemetery together um, and talked about the folly of human life and what's going on the, in politics and the rest of it. And he basically said, listen, I'm, I'm going to embark on this documentary series, which is my life's work. Um, I want to bring to public attention the incredible findings of the last 30 years of behavioral science, which basically shows that we, in our brains, take cognitive shortcuts to make most of our decisions. And those shortcuts are based on a system that we developed to survive life, you know, living hand to mouth on the plains 70,000 years ago. Um, and we, it turns out, are using most of our, you know, decisions are using that ancient circuitry rather than the high-minded sort of higher cognitive functions that we associate with being modern humans. And he said, so I want to travel the world. You know, we're going to meet all the top people in this field and you're going to basically be the guinea pig who experiences this stuff directly. And I had you just come have, you from- You must have been like, sign me up. This sounds oh, like yeah, a dream. Man. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. immediately I was like, that sounds- incredible and and he was such a cool guy and and the the team he had assembled was so extraordinary and 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 I have always had this interest in um like I, I had been thinking a lot about implicit bias and a lot of the sort of burgeoning research about that but didn't really understand any of it I, I mean I didn't understand how little I I knew about it until I went off and, and had this totally life-changing experience with making this show in which, you know, time and again, I was shown in experience after experience, experiment after experiment, you know, that most of my decisions are made on the basis of instinct, that that instinct is highly predictable and pattern-based. And, you know, for me going and, and, you know, being in front of everybody in front of these these uh, brilliant researchers and learning this stuff really changed my worldview. And one way that it was sort of summarized is that this this phrase came up again and again that people would 
um, uh, mention that we were interviewing, um, and this was right around the time of, of Donald Trump, uh, his candidacy coming together. We were, we were filming with some of the world's top experts on manipulation and persuasion right mm -hmm. around the time that he won. And one of the things that, that people would say to us again and again, is they would quote the famous aphorism from Theodore Parker, the abolitionist, that, um, the, that the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice, which is a thing that's then, you know, was quoted by Martin Luther King and then, right. uh, former President Obama used to say it a lot. Well, these experts basically would all say, we don't know any of that to be true. <laughs> First of all, we don't know how long the moral arc of history is because we have been on it for such a short period of time. We don't even know if it's an arc and we don't know which way it bends. You know, <laughs> um, Folks who actually study human behavior and how we get manipulated in modern society say that you know, if anything, our Western democratic ideals are a very fragile, unusual little experiment. And, uh, and so for me, having that kind of revealed to me, I mean, my, my, I feel like my whole career has been like, I go into something with the sort of naivete of a college freshman, and then I get disabused of it, you know, violently and suddenly. And in this case, I was disabused of my notion that things will naturally bend back toward a tolerant, diverse, open society. And basically what all of these experts were saying is, no, no, no. Our tribalism, our fondness for authoritarianism, our uh, instinct to excommunicate people who are not like us, all of that stuff is so strong and we have to fight and fight and fight to preserve this invented system of law and governance and the rest of it that we have created here in the West. Um, you know, that for me was a very violent disabusing of something that I had come to accept uh, as as just sort of the natural way of the world. The episode there in the the Hacking the Mind series, I think it was Us Versus Them, if I remember the title right. Um, not just a good Pink Floyd song, but it also hooked me because of its attention to the core social psychological research that I had looked at a few years earlier. In my case, like I said, science and technology did not ultimately appeal to me in a career sense, mm -hmm. but there I was in a political science program at Duke getting my PhD, and I found that some of the most interesting insights about international relations weren't from political scientists. They were from people mm -hmm. in fields around political science, like history, philosophy, and psychology. And I mm -hmm. found myself digging into a lot of the social psychology research, Kahneman, Tversky, and how they applied it to social psychology, but especially on studies of in-group and out-group identity. Yeah. And in my case, I anthropomorphized a bit, although I often would put it on the, the, the national leaders, not the countries themselves, to say that we can explain how international alliances endure beyond the changing of the conditions that brought them into being, if we simply look at in-group and out-group identities, NATO was the big example. When I was in grad school, you know, NATO was still there, but the Soviet Union had fallen apart and everybody was questioning, should we still have NATO? How long will NATO hold together before they start fighting each other? And so my question was not NATO, but about the dynamics of alliances overall. Do we have cases of alliances that have held together longer than a pure rational calculation says they should. And can that be attributed to the fact that alliance members over time cooperating on a number of things begin to th see themselves as an in-group, as, as the tribalism in a different sense? And 
I found myself in watching the the Hacking the Mind series and seeing how you talked about some of these dynamics and how they merge with and combine with confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and realizing just about everything from school boards to national elections to international alliances all fall back on these fundamental issues of psychology and especially social psychology. Yeah. I mean, for me, that was also true. It's funny because coming out of, um, um, uh, coming out of popular science, popular science, we, we had a little bit of a, mm-hmm. I mean, we had a bias about social sciences, um, as being sort of too soft and squishy. I mean, part of it was that you, it was very hard to illustrate them and you couldn't, you know, they didn't generate a shiny, hard, fast object you could put on the cover. Right. But we also just, there was a sort of, I was, there was an inherited bias about that as being sort of unquantifiable. It's not serious science in the way that chemistry and physics and the rest of it was. And, and it turns out that for me, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, Kahneman and Tversky and those guys, right, really introduced a kind of quantitative rigor to social science that we had, you know, that, that people had not really seen before. And, and while there has been some uh, replicability crises in psychology some big studies have been shown to to not bear up under repeated uh efforts um Kahneman and Tversky and those guys and the constellation that they inspired those findings really stand the test of time if anything they get stronger when they get tested again and so mm-hmm. um so it's been really interesting to me for that and and one of the places that I, I when I was first pursuing the book the loop that i was i was sort of casting a really wide net trying to talk to all sorts of people about um you know all sorts of issues and one thread that i sort of tried to pursue but but wound up not really doing uh in any real sense because i just couldn't figure out how to fold it all in was international relations and sort of the way that politics abroad is moving one way or another way based on some of the things that social psychologists uh, might have predicted. And I remember one really big one for me was was, um, interviewing a researcher in Israel named Boaz Hamiri, who uh, designed a study in which basically there was a there was a a big contest in Israel to try to move the needle in some way on um the the Israel Palestinian situation mm-hmm. and they took a bunch of money that had come from a a big benefit concert and they offered it as grant money to all these different researchers and this and because they'd sort of exhausted a bunch of their more traditional academic pathways they actually brought in a bunch of advertising people to think about this as well and they and this one advertising executive said well we should use we should we should play around with um, the thing that we use to talk people out of smoking, which is um, this thing called paradoxical agreement. And it's basically over agreement. And it's a tried and true marketing technique in which what you do is you sort of over agree with a position that uh, someone might be taking that is not benefiting them. And so in the case of quitting smoking, you'd have somebody saying, you know, cigarettes aren't so bad. All my friends smoke and no one's gotten sick yet. And you as the the smoking cessation counselor will be tempted to say, no, dummy, your chances of lung cancer are 50%. What are you talking about? Instead, you don't do that. You instead say, 
You're absolutely right. Not only that, I don't think you should listen to doctors about anything. You shouldn't go to dentists. You shouldn't use a doctor for childbirth, none of it. And then if you do that enough, they've found, then eventually that smoker says, well, I don't know, that's a little excessive. I'd li I like a doctor for, you know, birthing a child. I mean, that seems important, you know, and over time you can swing them back. So, so this guy, Hamiri and his colleagues began to play around with a very finely tuned version of that, um, aimed at, uh, in this case, a very, uh, right wing voters in a particular town in Israel. And he, they, they crafted this whole message that was based on a very common, uh, trope in Israel, as I understand it, I'm just repeating what he told me, but mm -hmm. you know, the trope is essentially that, that Israel is the most moral country in the world and that morality, you know, is the core of being Israeli. And they crafted a message that basically said, we need the Israeli, we need the Palestinian conflict in order to be moral was sort of the way that they crafted it. And, and, uh, and they hit this one town with a huge amount of like billboards and TV ads and t-shirts and Facebook ads, um, and, and changed the way everybody voted in the next election. They all suddenly went centrist from having been really right wing in, and, and it like transformed the vote. And I said to him, wow, that's really interesting. How cool that that worked. You know, you must be thrilled. Uh, you know, it's a way of, uh, you know, and this was again, me being naive cause I'm always naive. And, and, and he said, no man, it's not cool. That's not cool. It's not good. He said, because we also tried it on, um, left-wing people in Germany around immigration, and it swung them center as well. It's just a manipulative tactic. It's just a weapon. It doesn't bring people toward what's right. It just brings people toward, uh, you know, it just manipulates people essentially. And for me, there was between that and talking to people who had been part of the, the Good Friday Accords and people who study extremism abroad, um, there, it turns out that there are all kinds of ways or, you know, this was for me an early inkling of all the different ways in which social psychology, social science could be sort of applied to thinking about these things. And then as often as not, you know, could be used to manipulate people in right. ways that I hadn't really thought about. Right. And that, that really does feed into this, this project you've done your most your recent book, mm -hmm. the loop, the main loop that you're referring to there, just to get that clear it seems to be the the automated pattern recognition systems that ultimately reduce human agency and choice. Um, in your words, because you put it better than I do, the loop is a downward tailspin of shrinking choices, supercharged by capitalist efficiency, in which human agency is under threat from irresistible systems packaged for our unconscious acceptance. That's the big loop. But you point out that to understand that loop, which we will get to, we need to look at the nested loops inside of it. Namely, first is this, this human behavior that includes, but isn't limited to, these issues of confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, in-group, out-group behavior. What struck you the most in grokking all of these different elements of human behavior and seeking to apply them to technology. What was the, the transition there where you said, I really got to talk about the, the science of psychology in order to lay the foundation for these discussions of AI and everything else I'm going to be having? 
Well, for me, it was very much the the uh, the realization that so much of what we do is unconscious, and yet we hate to have that pointed out to us. Oh yeah, you know, and and this is true. You know, over the years, I've done a lot of stories on addiction, right, and and the deep distaste we have for people who fall prey to addiction, especially in the United States. You know, we always treat it as some sort of moral failing or a failing of parenting or whatever it is. And we're so uh, hostile to the notion that, you know, anybody can fall prey to addiction. And what I sort of realized in doing Hacking Your Mind was, you know, one of the big takeaways was a, a, a researcher at USC named Wendy Wood was talking a lot about how we outsource our decision-making to our environment. So there's a sequence in Hacking Your Mind where we go together to a, a taco stand. And I sort of say, and I'm t she, she's an expert in how habits are formed. And I was sort of saying, you know, I really have a hard time being restrained when I come to a, a taco stand. I, I immediately want to go for a carnitas burrito with all the extra stuff, you know, and she said, well, this is the thing. You are not actually making the choice. Your brain is looking to external cues to make its decisions for it. It's how we have stayed alive all this time. You don't sit and evaluate the calories on offer on that tree. The tree and its smells and its sights and the red berries and all of that stuff just pops and your brain says, this is the moment. Grab that those calories, you know, the, the, the whole cognitive shortcut idea, uh, that it forms the basis of so much of behavioral science is we needed a way to make quick decisions that cost us very little cognitive energy. And, uh, and by and large, those decisions serve us right, at least in the old days in the, in the survival instincts kind of ways. And so once I had learned from Wendy Wood and from others, just how prone we are to offloading our decisions to external systems. I then, at the same time in my day job at NBC and elsewhere, right, was looking at all these different companies who were saying, listen, we've got these systems that can make decisions easier for humans. And these are AI-driven systems that can take a huge amount of unreadable data and save you a bunch of time in making predictions about which mole is going to turn into cancer or which movie a given person is going to like next. And I began to put those two worlds together and say, okay, we have this incredible predilection, this well-established predilection for offloading our decisions to exterior, to external systems if they save us time. And uh, this burgeoning multi-trillion dollar industry mm -hmm. that is based on the idea that we're going to use algorithms we do not understand mm -hmm. to make life more efficient. And there was no area of human activity that, that I couldn't see that happening in. And so that was where I wanted to, I, I, but I right. knew just to point out AI systems are making decisions for us and we got to be careful was not going to be enough. I knew, and this is the, the, the thing that make, a book makes possible, I knew I needed to spend two or three chapters saying, okay, here is the, the circuitry mm -hmm. across which this stuff is going to play. And right. you have to accept that first to really see the danger that I'm trying to articulate. And so that was, the, that was the, why it's so wonderful to have a book to play with. And there's so many interesting places you go to do that, uh, mini case studies that 
would not appear the most logical choice, and yet they they really do illustrate it. So I do I do want to get to some of those, but you you mentioned up front in in talking to people at so many of these tech companies, one easy direction to go is everybody designing these systems knows that they are preying on human weaknesses, if we want to go that strongly, or at least human vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. and they are evil because they're doing it for profit. The other direction is, no, the people doing it think they're helping humanity by helping us make choices, by bringing us content we want, by, like you said, making healthcare decisions for us or to augment human healthcare decision-making um, for the universal good. Where on that spectrum, not judging any individual, but yeah. where on that spectrum of the hundreds or thousands of people in the tech industry you've talked to, where do you place the the average? Do Are most people fully aware of the potential evil and manipulation of these systems and they're doing it almost with, you know, a Kubrickian glee? Or mm-hmm. are they more on the other side saying, you know, we think we are doing good here and they're shocked when you tell them that this could actually be disruptive in many ways? That is such a smart question. And and I, I hope I can do it justice here. I mean, so there's a number of things I want to say about this. So we live at a moment for anyone who, who is not familiar with the tech industry or has not sort of been part of it. We live in a moment where you really cannot recruit people into a tech job, the top people anyway, into a tech job, unless you can articulate some kind of world benefiting mission at your company. And so you constantly see in the announcement of a new startup words like mission driven, values driven, right? This is a, this is a, it's a, it's so a, true. It's so yeah, true. it is a, you know, and it, and it's incredible the number of companies you see it, you know, there, it, it, you do, it doesn't matter what the mission of the company actually is, right? I mean, right. there are companies, um, I mean, Juul, the vape company, mm-hmm. Uh, had all that same rhetoric, you know, and, and I'm sure they would argue that they were in some ways, you know, improving on a world with cigarettes. So, so, you know, but, but it doesn't really matter what you're selling. You're, if you work in tech in any form, there's going to be a layer typically referred to as people and culture. They no longer call it HR um, that is built to reinforce for you the feeling that you are doing good in this world. Mm -hmm. So, so that's an important thing to understand. Now, I have also met lots and lots of young, smart, entrepreneurial founders, right? App makers yeah. who want to make a product that really does do well, do do good in this world. And and those folks you know, I, I meet people who, you know, are trying to create automated systems that help you save money or automated systems that help you get fit or, you know, whatever these systems are. And they deploy the same kinds of system, you know, the same kind of uh, user interface design and, uh, you know, the, all of the mechanics, the design mechanics are very similar to, uh, to you know, any, any uh, sort of product that you could conceivably call predatory. Mm-hmm. So, so the tools are are a common set of tools and the motivations range now there is then another side of this that's important to weave in here which is that the, uh, there is a very common ethos in silicon valley companies um that i think you could fairly call libertarian mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is this idea that the world is what it is, and we are simply making the best possible product that delivers the best amount of you know the best possible value to our shareholders based on the world as it is. And the market will decide whether the this market is- will decide. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and those are the folks that basically say you know if a, if the, if a product finds a market, then it's worth making, mm-hmm. and um, and that logic, unfortunately. In, can encompass both well-meaning folks who are trying to help you save money or lose weight, but that same idea can also uh, encompass the companies that I would describe as being truly predatory, and that's mm-hmm. companies that make things like social casino games or right. online sports book, which deploy the same design ideas and use the same off-the-shelf AI to predict human behavior but wind up costing people, you know, I've spoken to people who've lost their entire life savings to a, you know, a $4.99 per play online game, right? A, a, a phone app. Yeah. So, so it's a very, I think you're asking a very smart question, you know, what are the motivations of people? And the, so, so for me, I think there is a spectrum. There are some common threads that run through all of them. And then the, the overarching problem that I'm trying to articulate in this book to, to varying degrees of success, I'm sure, is all of that mm-hmm. plays on our human tendency to want to offload our decision-making to external systems. Right. And right. over time, whether you are falling prey to a money-saving you know, or fitness-making app or falling prey to an online sportsbook app, mm-hmm. if you get used to those things in your life, I still think the same effect is have is happening to your brain, which is an offloading of your choices, an assumption that there is an automated system out there that can make a choice for you mm-hmm. and that you should hand those choices to them. So mm-hmm. motivation in a way winds up, I think, being somewhat irrelevant or at least yep. not yep. good enough to keep us from losing something fundamental. Yeah, I, I see that. The the motivation can be relevant for dealing with individuals involved in that system. But in terms of addressing how that system damages society in many ways and, and damages individuals particularly, it is irrelevant because whether they mean well or not, the systems that they are creating are having this effect. And I was, I was struck by one story that, frankly, I had forgotten about. But as soon as I, I read about it in the loop, I, I, I remembered it. And this was the story of the airplane at, I think it was O'Hare. It was one of the Chicago mm-hmm. airports, but I yep. believe it was O'Hare several years ago now. And the incident that happened when they really, really wanted someone to take a voucher and take a later flight. Uh, I believe it had to be the next day, which was part of the yep. problem. No one took the voucher. So they raised the amount still. No one wanted to leave the plane. Talk through what happened next and how some automated systems and the lack of the human willingness or ability to question them led to a suboptimal result for everyone. Yeah. So in 2017, uh, a United flight was the final flight out of Chicago to, oh, geez, I can't remember where they were going, but- um, I want to say Cincinnati, the, but that might- Yes, I think that may be right. I can't remember. But anyway, the the- and and uh, as you say, they they raised the stakes. They offered a certain amount of money, and then more money, and nobody would take it because nobody wanted to get off the flight. And um, finally, the um, the staff said, "Okay, we're going to now choose names at random 
the computer is going to choose a name and those people will have to get off. So they choose four names and announce them. And three of those people dutifully get off the flight. Well, the fourth person was a guy named David Dow. He was a pulmonologist on his way home to uh, wherever he was going. And, and his he had patients the next day and he, in the first thing in the morning. And so he said, I cannot get off this flight. It would endanger my patients if I do that. And it turns out that there are, in fact, regulations that govern that. And he was not supposed to be forced to get off that flight. But nobody was thinking about that at that time. So they say, sir, your, your name has been chosen by the computer. You got to go. And he refuses and refuses and it escalates and escalates. And finally, the um, the ground staff calls in the Chicago Aviation Police. And these officers arrive and they mess this guy up. They beat him up. They essentially, they you know, in the efforts to get him out of his seat, wind up clonking him against another seat. He uh, uh, breaks bones and uh, has a concussion. Uh, it's a nightmare, right? And he gets dragged out of this flight. So... It led to, you know, and, and afterwards, uh, there was all of this scorn for the officers for having uh, overdone it and for United at sort of having overdone it. And and the, the CEO of United was deeply humiliated. And nowadays, mm -hmm. nobody gets dragged off flights. You know, they, they just keep raising the amount of money. And that's probably good. Yep. But... What, what somebody asked me, at a, I was at a, a conference, somebody said, you know, why, why did they choose him? And what, and what role did that play in it? And it was such a good question. And so I made a chunk of the book about that because it turned out that the officer, one of the officers sued uh, United and O'Hare saying, we were not properly prepared for this. And he was made fun of at the time, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, by local newscasts and so forth. That's, you know, this frivolous lawsuit. But it was such an interesting question. What he was asking is basically like, how are we supposed to respond when they tell us to do this, right? There was no, nothing, there was no opportunity and no training for stepping back and saying, is this really the thing we're supposed to do, you know? And, and I just read it as this sort of example of the of the ways in which over and over again automated systems are making decisions for us just as the computer chose this guy's name and no one in the chain of command then has the power mm -hmm. to override that system and as in this case when you hand a really fraught decision that nobody wants to make nobody wants to be the one who who points randomly at people and says you're the one who's going to get off right nobody wants to take on that responsibility so abdicating that and handing it off to the computer is much preferable to the gate agent right than right. than having to do the, the choice herself and so for me it became this way of thinking about it and then if you it turns out that there are people who study anthropomorphism the giving of sophistication to systems we don't understand yeah. um, who could have told you all kinds of things about how fraught that situation was. And so for me, that was a way of thinking about it. And, and um, I had a reviewer criticize that for being sort of too, too tidy an example. But for me, it's not about the specifics of that computer. What it is, is the, the, it is the tendency, the human tendency to want to hand Yes. morally difficult decisions off and and abide by the results at any cost right and such that everybody turns off their critical faculties um i think that's a real warning for what's going to happen when we start handing off all sorts of decisions but you know i mean you know right in national security absolutely people are handing all kinds of crazy decisions off to automated systems yeah at a, at a, even without augmented systems there's a parallel which is an issue that has often come up in uh conflict 
whether it's political or actual physical kinetic conflict is, am I following a lawful order? Mm. And this obviously has come up in generations past when people do something and then say, but you know, the commander ordered me to do it. And we have decided as a society um, that that is not acceptable, <laughs> that you, you, you have the moral responsibility yourself to judge whether something is right or wrong. In a military context, you cannot follow an unlawful order. Um, you are required not to follow an unlawful order. But I put myself in the shoes of that officer you mentioned. He did not know how the computer made this decision. I'm not even sure he knew the computer made the decision. Ultimately, he just knew that he was ordered to go in and remove this passenger who was violating the, the rules and regulations such as they were. But the parallel is, how is he supposed to know the, at a minimum, the wisdom and justice, but at the extreme, the legality of the algorithm that led to that result? There's no well, easy answer right. there. Well, and, and when you look even across the people who, who in theory should be able to evaluate these systems and how they make the decisions, even they have no idea how they work. There was a study of, of um, CTOs, the top technical people at a bunch of Fortune 500 companies, you know, hundreds of companies who uh, are handing huge amounts of responsibility to automated systems for everything yeah. from hiring to loan making to whatever, you know, risk assessment. And they were asked, you know, how how well do you understand your system? And, you know, something like 70% of them said they had no idea how the yeah. thing made the, the choices it did. And then when they were asked, does that concern you? The majority of them said no, hmm. right? I mean, this yeah. is the thing, the opportunity to, to not have to think about it yeah. is a, a, a big one, you know, I, I, and you see this in every area of life. So for me, I think you're absolutely right that, that there's, there's been this assumption that as moral actors, we are supposed to pull back when we feel, you know, uh, something is immoral or, or unlawful or whatever it is, but you just have to put yourself in the position of somebody who, you know, whose whole job is built around the profit incentive mm -hmm. and the, and the efficiency incentives, you know, when the, that officer in Chicago, you know, has, a, a, you know, a, an airplane full of waiting passengers, a, you know, a, pl a whole institution whose whole thing is about its on-time record, mm -hmm. you know, everything is telling these guys to get this thing done. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like as we push toward efficiency, especially with these systems, um, it's going to become harder and harder and harder to step back from it unless we encode in some way, what you're describing, the ability to step back and say, I'm not sure I'm going to do this, or, you know, right. or, or maybe that has to be encoded into the algorithms themselves. I don't know that I believe that that's really a thing we can do, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, that we are, we are underestimating how irresistible yeah. it's going to be. I want uh, to talk a little bit. Say. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the why of the dynamic you just mentioned. So the CTOs say, yeah, there's this system that quote, helps, unquote, us determine who should get a loan or determine who should get the uh, healthcare uh, treatment, things of this sort. But they don't know how the system works. We know the system is good. It's been tested and it actually works remarkably efficiently, but we can't explain how it works. Talk through that a little bit. Why is it that in the construction of some of these automated systems, 
it is literally more efficient for us not to have it explain how it works. Right. So the way that uh, most AI systems function is essentially a, um, you know, I mean, the, the whole concept of them is to be able to process data that you and I, with our little human brains, could not churn through, right? I mean, you think like about the ways in which we used to as, as you know, how astronomers used to try to see what was a planet and what was a star. And they would literally look at, at photos of the night sky and compare them side by side and see if, if anything in the picture had moved, right? And we were terrible at that. It would take years and years of very OCD work to, to even make that possible, right? So AI is able to do uh, you know, to take a just what to us would just be a mess of data and look for patterns that can predict an outcome typically. Um, and there are all sorts of different flavors of AI and machine learning that can do that do that in various ways, and we could get into that if you like. but but the you know the 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 fundamental idea is that you're taking super messy data, you're showing a system some outcomes that you would like to see. And then it finds essentially the quickest and most efficient way to make predictions about that data that will give you the results that you're looking for. Um, and by virtue of that, it is so, so building the step into it in which it then has to show you the rules it has followed to make those predictions and explain the common threads among the various connections it has made is a whole other engineering step that uh, is in some cases would would make it even you know so so much more complicated that it wouldn't even really be worth it from a profit perspective to spend the amount of engineering time on that that you would need to now there are many very smart ethicists and AI thinkers who are currently saying any system that you build that cannot be explained, should not be built. And there are some very famous examples in a couple in the book of people saying, you know, I'm not going to build an opaque black box that cannot explain itself. I'm going to instead build a system that shows you its work as it goes, right? But that is, there has not been a huge amount of pressure on that. Now, one reason for that is that liability law has not, for the most part, caught up with the technology. And I just had, it's one of the great cruel uh, uh, facts of writing a book like this is that people come out of the woodwork that you wish you had known about when you were writing the book. Yes, because exactly read the book, right. right, of course. Uh, but in this case, you know, I had a law firm come out of the woodwork and call me up and say, hey, we're very interested in what you do, um, you know, what you're writing. Uh, we, in fact, have created a practice that shows big companies the legal liability they face for over-relying on these systems because plaintiffs are beginning to figure out how to sue in court mm -hmm. uh, on that basis. And I was very interested by them. And so, and, and they, they, their, you know, description of the world is one of vast liability for companies that are relying on these opaque black box systems that, that do not explain their work. Um, and so it could be, and I put a lot of uh, faith, maybe too much faith in the courts around this stuff, because I think that lawsuits are going to sort a lot of this stuff out, or at least get us moving in the right direction and sorting a lot of this stuff out. But this, this, there's been this sort of naive assumption on the part of people who rely on these systems, especially at big companies, that they don't, not only do they not have to understand how these systems work, but that they somehow are inoculated from a liability perspective if they don't know 
that reminds me very much of what you're saying. Oh, I was just following orders. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now it's no longer acceptable to say that. We may right. be approaching that world in AI. I hope so anyway. You know, when you brought up the, the law firm reaching out to you, it recalled something I've heard you say in another forum, and I apologize, I don't remember where, but you highlighted the contrast that has uh, come to mind when you speak with some of your colleagues who do reporting at the Pentagon and in national security. And, mm. and they talk about how difficult it is to get sources on the inside to talk about things. Yeah. And then they describe what they actually mean when they say difficult and how many sources. And that you find yourself shaking your head saying, I wish I had that kind of access inside yeah. some of these tech companies. Talk about that. Talk about the difficulties of getting reporting from inside some of these companies when uh, they themselves are often not allowed to question the use of the systems they're developing. Yeah. So we've spoken already about the, the culture of, you know, being a mission valued, you know, mission value driven company, you know, whatever it is. Um, that plays a huge role in it. So you have a huge number of people, you know, operating in a, in a company, telling everybody around them, your work is making an enormous difference to the world and improving the world. So right there, you've already preconditioned people to be deeply loyal to the organization. I mean, that's the point of it. And there is also built into that, the understanding that speaking to anyone outside the company, especially people in uh, journalism like me, is being disloyal to those mission, to that mission or to those values, that that is a betrayal of those values. So that is already strike one against my efforts to, to get people to talk to me. Strike two is uh, you, uh, it is very much not only a fireable offense uh, to speak to the press, um, but uh, can poison your reputation across companies you if you are known as you know we have had many brave people come forward to us at NBC and to me personally you know who have been whistleblowers uh, this that, or the other you know those people are outcast from that industry almost forever essentially and in some cases can you know be subjecting themselves to legal difficulties that right. you know nobody can afford um, so the risk is enormous and the fireable sort of offenses are enormous that's strike two strike three is um, the, the companies are very often built such that only the very topmost people have any real overall strategic sense of what's going on. And everybody else is, is kept in the dark. Not only are they kept in the dark, but if they ask too much about what, you know, I have a friend who works at one of these companies and, and he was describing, you know, he says basically if he asks too many times what the thing that he is working on is intended for, he gets fired, you know, that they are actively discouraged from that. Um, and you add to all of that, that these are some of the best paid, best valued people in the world. You know, I interviewed one guy who, and I said to him, do you think you'll ever go back to academia because they, he's a top thinker in his field. And so as are so many people being hired into this world. Um, and he said, no, no, why would I do that? You know, all my academic and intellectual heroes suddenly work with me. I can get on their calendar whenever I want. I can churn through more data than I would ever be allowed to inside a university. You know, it's a dream world for me. So all of that means uh, that, you know, this, this culture of total silence, highly motivated and, you know, loyal uh, employees and uh, a, a no tolerance policy makes it incredibly difficult uh, to find people willing to talk. Now, there are some people who are much better at, at that, at cultivating those relationships than, than I have been. But yeah, I mean, 
you know, with with national security and the rest of it, and, and I mean no disrespect to anybody who covers those things, those people work really hard as well. But, you know, typically one of those things that I mentioned, loyalty, money, uh, you know, insight into the overall strategy, one of those things usually is working, uh, you know, in the journalist's favor incurring a, a relationship with the subject and that is not the case for me so so yeah i uh and i would just say to anybody listening here if you work at a big company and you'd like to <laughs> to speak to me i'm very good at keeping secrets and and this is the thing is that these companies hold our future i think that they are determining how human behavior is going to work in the future and and um, the fact that that is happening in this totally silent way that the public has almost no insight into right. um, i think is is one of the great journalistic challenges of our time and that's such an interesting point because we so often in the national security area you know it's not always pinned to one agency but i think the agency that gets it most is the national security agency because people will think uh, sometimes it's conscious so they will think or they will just feel that you know, the government is spying on me. Uh, the government is listening to every phone call, reading every email. Having worked inside the government, I try to reassure people there are not, if you tripled the workforce, there would not be enough people to process that and the automated systems would not be interested. And no, but put that aside. The idea is we need to watch NSA really, really, really closely. And there is a kernel of truth to that, which is the government by nature of being the government and what society has given the government in terms of coercive power uh, does have immense power and therefore immense responsibility. I give them that. But there is a difference, which is the level of civilian and eventually legal oversight, but even congressional oversight. Whereas you have systems that are affecting everyday decisions much more than NSA is, right? Down to what app your kid is using yeah. that have no such oversight at all. And it leads to a situation where you're relying in the way you've just formulated it. You're relying on the person at the top of the company. And I don't care whether it's Epic Games or Facebook, or I don't even know who makes Candy Crush, but you, you're relying on the person who knows how that system will be used to make that final ethical decision and by the time you've developed the system and invested perhaps millions or tens of millions of dollars in an entire apparatus and engineering project and system, there's a strong dis disincentive to ethically saying no and stopping a program. Um, that's, that's dangerous in a way that most people haven't fully grokked yet. They haven't put their minds around the way those systems are reducing our choices and actually putting us in a situation where we're going to be less capable of even understanding the choice going forward. That's a depressing conclusion. And I know yeah. you don't want to bring people down. You want to, in a sense, wake people up. But we have a real contrast there of knowing about something and feeling like that gives us the impetus to take action versus knowing something and shaking our heads and saying, well, it's all around me. That's just the way it is now. How do you resolve that for people? How do you tell people, no, this isn't a story I'm telling to get you to give up. This is a story I'm telling to help you understand it and take action. Well, I, I really appreciate that question because it is true. I mean, this, the, the, the book, you know, is a bummer, right? I mean, you know, people say, oh, you're so cynical. And I, 
and I go, well, yeah, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough moment. Like we're in a scary moment right now. No question. Sometimes um, but I, to be realistic, you are yeah. cynical. I mean, that, I think that's right. I, it's analyzing I the think, problem accurately. I think that's right. I mean, I think I've spent enough time covering this industry to earn the right to have some opinions about it. And in this case, you know, my opinion is very, I have a low opinion of the idea that people are going to be able to, that, that we're going to just sort of solve this overnight. Now, I do, however, think, I mean, the, the, this moral arc of history, but it bends toward justice idea that we were talking about, right? History is long and brutal. There, you know, we come from a very scary, violent past. And almost every, you know, I, I think anybody who talks about, you know, oh, we, for, if only we could go back to living in a simpler time has really not read about what it was like to live in a simpler time. Right. You know, uh, we as a society have come so far. Um, you know, my father is, is likes pointing out the sheer sophistication and, and you know, the, the modern amazingness of the dividing lines on highways that we go hurtling along a highway at 65, 70 miles an hour, right? Faster than our brains are built to move. We are inches from the other people in their other cars. And yet we somehow all, you know, obviously there's a huge number of deaths every year, but you know, we, the fact that I don't get injured every time I go out in the car is incredible, right? So to my mind, I, I try to take, you know, I, I, and there are many examples in the book of places in which we as a society have taken a look at not just the profit motive, not just the efficiency, not just the sheer numbers, and have made an improvement to life. And so one example, right, is is um, backup cameras. So, yeah. you know, there's every year uh, until recently, between 30 and 60 people a year were being killed, typically in their own driveway. And these are usually kids. Mm-hmm. And the, the horror of it is that they were typically being run over by their own parents coming home or backing out. And uh, the, the horror of that is unmistakable. We as a society basically decided that is totally unacceptable. And this bipartisan group came together and passed laws that now make it mandatory that any new car sold in America have, has to include a backup camera. Mm-hmm. And we, you and I pay more as a, you know, on the sticker price um, uh, for it. It changes the weight of the car. I mean, you know, it's a pain, uh, to build this in and we are only heading off something like 30 to 60 deaths a year. Only but, is such an important, word I know it's not, context, it's, isn't it? right. It's, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing, but, but, but in a country that, that, you know, where 30,000 people a die, people a year die from, you know, opioids and gunfire and, you know, the, the top, uh, killers of people by accidental injury is like in the tens of thousands. So the idea that we as a society would come together over something that kills, you know, a a relatively small number of people is to me a symbol that we as a society can look at our values and say, you know what, we can do better than this. And we, we can agree that this is unacceptable to us. You know, we can build our values into a system against all of the math in a sense. Right. And, and so to me, I really, I I want to look at this as a way of thinking about the values we want to protect in the future. Now, you know, there is the, the difficulty of this, and this is the thing that I think is working really in favor of the forces that want to use behavior and technology to manipulate people 
there is a this this assumption that somehow we as individuals can simply stand up for ourselves. And I think there have been a number of sort of facile books written around the idea that you know we can somehow educate ourselves better and resist the pull of this stuff. And I just think that's not true. I think that the if you really look at how these companies operate and the scale at which they operate and the expertise they are bringing to bear and the resources they are bringing to bear, it is not the case that I can simply go around and bulletproof myself against you know the influence of this stuff. You would have to bulletproof what I th- yourself against the entire evolution of the human brain, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. Not no, realistic. exactly, exactly. You're moving to an island, right? And there aren't enough islands for all of us. Um, but I do think that we can, by virtue of hopefully some of the th- stuff I've tried to bring up in this book and a lot of the other smart work being done right now, begin thinking about oh, is it actually acceptable to me that my unconscious instincts are being played upon by these companies? And for me, what I'm hoping is that we can, as a result, you know, when we look at, Mm -hmm. you know, candidates who are running on the idea that that we should be, um, you know, perhaps not just letting companies make whatever they want to make, you know, or um, ballot measures that, try to protect your privacy in some way. You know, um, I think that, that I'm hoping that there can be a sense of, of values that we can start, you know, taking advantage of, or at the very least, and, and, and I think that can play out in many ways. It could be in, um, you know, straight up regulation, but I also think it's going to be in the minds of a jury when someone inevitably sues a technology company for, you know, having created an addictive predatory product. And we're already seeing those lawsuits begin to go against the companies that, that make these things in the case of, of gambling apps and so forth. So I think that, you know, it's about learning some values that we're going to apply at scale in the way that these companies have been applying them at scale Mm -hmm. to make money. And there are some of these pattern recognition systems, some of these things that we would call AI in, in, in general terms, that that do bring societal good. And I, I'll, I'll contrast their kind of- Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes. Some of them, if it helps identify cancers earlier, I'd have to think about it, but I think I'm all for that. If it's a gambling app, honestly, I'm pretty much against that. In the middle for me might be Netflix. Um, it's making recommendations to me based upon what I've watched before. And sometimes it's highlighting something I would not have come across before and I've enjoyed it. And that increases, you know, my, my happiness as a human being, but I don't feel strongly one way or another about it. Um, we survived back when we went to this store called Blockbuster. We even survived before we had choices, uh, to make like that. Um, but there are some that are clearly societal goods. You don't, you don't want to shut that down by opening up such a uh, wide litigation um, that some of the things that have a societal good, the risk is too high for companies to do those things. And I'm going to do something an interviewer should never do, but I'm going to mm. admit that I simply don't remember where I read this. And it may have been in the loop or it may have been somewhere else. Sure. So indulge me here. But there is a there is a mechanism for doing this that has to do with vaccines. And this is the mm. vaccine fund that everybody pays into uh, as a manufacturer and presumably as a, uh, a consumer, uh, ultimately, um, so that you can essentially fast track the legal system for legal claims against vaccines that, that, that don't go well medically. 
in order to have the societal good for the many times more people that benefit. Um, I think that was in the loop. So if it was, it is, yep. describe that and, and tell me where I just got it wrong. But tell me, does that provide a, a template for some other areas that we're talking about here where we can find a way to, to change our system just a bit or create a new societal and legal system to keep some of the benefits of these algorithms and engineering projects, um, but making sure that we don't dis destroy the societal good that comes with them. Yeah. So that is an episode in the loop and it was a, um, something that I learned about while I was at popular science many, many years ago, but basically there is a special court in Washington DC, right inside of the, the white house where if you or your family member is somehow injured by a routine vaccination. And so this is not the anti-vax madness and this is not COVID. Right. This right. is, um, uh, you know, you got a routine polio vaccine, mm. right? Something like that, a tetanus shot as a kid. And you unfortunately have an allergic reaction to it, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Sure. You can then go to this special court and apply for compensation for the damage done to your child, your family, the prospects, whatever it is. And there is a very tidy little mathematical formulation that they use to very quickly pay you out millions of dollars typically for the suffering or God forbid the loss of your child. And what's so interesting about it to me is that it is literally a like a special little bubble of law that, that um, does not obey the same rules as the rest of the American legal system. The, the court is run by a special master mm -hmm. um, and it is paid for by funds, as you mentioned, um, that the pharmaceutical companies pay and charge us for, for from each shot um, to create a no fault pool of essentially insurance. And what it's designed to do is compensate people fairly, you know, or at least as fairly as, as is possible for the horrible misfortune that befalls their, their child. Um, but weighed against that, as you mentioned, is the incredible benefit to society of vaccines. And the statistics are crazy. I mean, the, the number of, you know, kids, who whose families go to this court is is a vanishingly small number of people mm -hmm. compared to the overall benefit of a polio vaccine a tetanus vaccine whatever it is so for me you know i look at that and i and it's another case like with backup cameras where you can see a, a special system having been invented Mm -hmm. uh, to reflect our values and the benefit that a technology can have for us um, and protect that specialness while also trying to compensate people for the difficulty. Now, what is the parallel with something like machine learning? I'm not entirely sure. I think it could be something like, um, you know, here is uh, the, uh, you know, incredible behavioral effect on this population of people and they can apply for remedy because they lost their, you know, X number of hours of productivity. I don't even know. I'm making this up as I go along. Right. But like 
th there are effects that technology is having on behavior that I think are going to get quantified in yeah. court yeah. and are going to be the basis for some sort of compensation going forward. Yeah. And what I'm hoping is that something like that can then create an incentive for the companies that purvey this stuff to recognize the cost, which they are currently not paying, mm -hmm. of uh, um, creating manipulative stuff, even if they didn't mean to make it manipulative, right, of creating manipulative stuff toward negative ends mm -hmm. versus perhaps the power of creating things that make cancer diagnoses faster or right historical wrongs when it comes to you know writing mortgages or you know there are many 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 positive and money making possibilities for ai and i think there is some way we, you know we, we just sort of i i talk to people in tech and they very often it's so interesting to hear people who you know whose whole thing is to be inventing the future and imagine things we could never have done before who say when i say things like well couldn't you pay people a dividend on the use of their data over time, they say, oh, that's an unfeasible idea. It is too complicated to do that. And I'm like, wait, aren't you, don't you work at this company? You know, like, aren't you the masters right? at and, doing the difficult? Yeah, exactly. Isn't that the whole gig? Uh, and and so to me, I think that there is a way to, to you know, we, we could start thinking about smarter ways to, to um, think about fault and right. liability and responsibility. Um, we're smart enough for that. One of those things that we at Lawfare widely have have looked at, and a lot of our contributors are are true experts on looking at the ethical and practical challenges of, uh, is surveillance. Mm. And you have an interesting couple of angles on surveillance in the loop. Um, one of them has to do with the the town, I believe, in Massachusetts that has incorporated uh, quite a bit of surveillance, sometimes outside the the consciousness of its citizens because of the, I'll say excuses, but some of them are valid reasons of the police force saying, well, we have limited resources. You know, we can't watch mm -hmm. every park all the time, but yep. we can have a drone that does. And it's looking at people. But those drones can be used for things like monitoring for symptoms of COVID during a pandemic. And as soon as you start to realize that it can be used for that, that's a very slippery slope for it to become something more akin to what we, we push off as well that's what China does, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and where's the line between using a surveillance system for the common good in a representative democracy and using a surveillance system to come up with social credit scores and the yeah. kinds of things that we've seen in, in that system? How do, you, how do you wrap all that together and think of how this AI construction and how the, the loops that you talk about play into surveillance? Surveillance is such a difficult thing because as you say, right, it is, it is such a slippery slope. It can be used for one purpose or another, you know, right now, um, Clearview AI and the CEO of that company, it's a, a facial recognition company that draws from, you know, billions and billions of public, you know, scrapes off the web, public, uh, uh photos of you and me and anybody else who's ever basically put a photo of themselves on the web. Um, so that you can, it has an, it's an all purpose facial identification system. You can feed almost any photo into it and it'll tell you exactly who that person is, or at least show you the websites where their face shows up. And it's used by law enforcement in all kinds of creepy ways that, that has gotten Clearview a lot of ne scary negative attention. Um, well, Clearview right now is uh, being used in the Ukraine by Ukrainian forces, according to the New York Times, 
to um, identify Russian soldiers and uh, uh, the and in some cases uh, dead Russian soldiers, so that they can identify them and then uh, and then notify their family, who they uh, Ukrainian authorities assume are not being told the truth about where their kid was. Um, you know, slippery. Talk about slippery, right? Uh, what is the what are the ethics of that, right? Like we have not sorted any of that out. Um, I spoke to a number of people in the sort of military technology space, including Palmer Lucky, the company uh, Andrew that he runs makes all sorts of border and uh, it basically makes hardware for the military. That's a lot of which is driven by AI. Um, uh, you know, uh, Juan Tantat, the CEO of Clearview. And one thing that, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things that they say, you know, one is, um, that we have a responsibility as a nation to compete with countries like China that are moving so fast toward these all-encompassing surveillance systems. And China mm. has, uh, they have a, an initiative called the Smart Cities Initiative. I think it's now called the Safe Cities Initiative, where they basically export these all-encompassing facial recognition and tracking and surveillance systems to capital cities around the, the world. So if you walk around Karachi right now or Lagos, you're likely being captured, your image is being captured by a Chinese system that is identifying your face and sorting out where you've been and, you know, all of that stuff. And so we have, you know, the 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 Chinese model of an all-encompassing surveillance system is being exported and becoming a norm. And, and the, you know, a, a city like Quito, Ecuador, that has bought this system reports incredible improvements in uh, their crime numbers, right? I mean, it seems to really work. It has a chilling effect, as a constitutional scholar would say, on evildoers, right? So, but, uh, you know, and so so the people that I speak to at, you know, Palmer Lucky made the point to me, you know, he said, well, we need an American alternative to that, that those countries might buy instead. And I said, well, what does that look like? And he's like, I have no idea. You know, he doesn't know. And so, uh, uh, then, you know, I mean, one thing, David, I just want to be sort of straight about is like, I feel like I have identified the need to monitor the behavioral effects of technology on people hmm. in a way that, like, I recognize that a lot of what I sort of am, am complaining about and worrying about in this book could under other, you know, branded in a different way could sound like an argument from, you know, a, a, a central communist party functionary, you know, for better control or better, uh, you know, stability or whatever it is, you know, and I think that that, I, I don't want to be naive about the fact that I'm, I'm talking about human behavior as a thing that we need to sort of better monitor and control for in a way. We need to make, you know, protect the best parts of who we are, right, is one of the lines that I use, but it is, I can see, you know, that sounds like propaganda and another coming out of another person's mouth. So, so I, I can't claim to know, uh, what the difference is between these things. You know, I've, I've been to a dinner party where the social credit system in China, in which how you behave online affects whether or not you can get a, everything from a bank loan to a train ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that system was described to this room full of, of San Francisco entrepreneurs and half, you know, this was a while ago before people really knew about it. And half of them were like, that's horrible and Orwellian. And the other half were like, we should have that here. That's a great idea, right? So I think what I'm trying to sort of point out to everybody is like, just because an American company made it for profit 
doesn't mean that it's going to adhere to our values. And just because a, you know, centralized authority is exporting it to, you know, countries around the world doesn't mean that it's not going to look in yeah. some way like what we would want. You know, so we need to be smarter than this about what we want and don't want in our society. And we cannot just trust that because Americans made it for money, it's okay to make. You're so right. It, how we frame something makes so much of a difference, uh, both in terms of how it's received, but also in terms of how what our goals are in doing it. I recall a a sign that I saw. My family and I went to Iceland before the pandemic, and we're walking down a street in uh, Reykjavik, and we see a sign on a, um, well, I won't give away what it was, but we see a sign that says, Husband Daycare Center. Great opportunity to shop alone in Iceland without a nagging husband. We'll take good care of him for, you know, an hour or two. We have 20 TVs and enough sport to keep him occupied for several hours. So it's a bar with a happy hour, um, but they're framing it in an entirely different way. Um, <laughs> and to me, that just, it highlights how you frame something reveals both your own motives, but it also, you know, appeals to people in a different way. and. The way you describe that of talking about the social, the social capital, social credit system, and having half of the people say, "Yeah, that sounds good," you know, thinking from an engineering standpoint, "Wow, that sounds interesting." Um, that points to some trouble. I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm going to go into a second area because you were so gracious in allowing me to show my weakness as an interviewer. I'm going to do it again um, by putting you on the spot to judge a couple of uh, movies that have to do with some of these issues we've talked about, uh, both in terms oh, of how it. you think they have gotten people to think about these concepts you talk about, um, and also to the extent that they have any insight into, into actual technology, whether they get it right or not. And the risk is you haven't seen these movies and I feel foolish, but I'll try. Um, first, in terms of the surveillance, one of the things you talk about in the loop is the ability to do some, in a sense, uh, predictive crime, like noticing that this pattern recognition software will notice this person is exhibiting all the things that we've seen with shoplifting. And, and it holds up really well. And it actually is right so much of the time that even though we can't understand how it reaches that conclusion, um, people will say, this helps us prevent shoplifting. But you're talking about a criminal act that hasn't occurred yet which immediately brings to my mind Minority Report. First, the, the Philip K. Dick story, but made more popular by the, the movie starring Tom Cruise. Have you seen Minority Report? And what do you think of it when you intersect it with these issues you've just written about? I have seen Minority Report, and I think it's very uh, a very astute thing to compare it to. So, so I remember at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. Max von Sydow, the bad guy, says, you know, basically, look at all the good we've done. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it is, but right, he's, and I just, it, what he's, what he's doing there is exactly what people say um, at tech companies when you point out that something has gone wrong, that kids are finding drugs and overdosing that they, on those drugs on that platform, or, you know, uh, genocide has been perpetrated across, you know, the communication network you built or whatever it is, right? People say, yeah, but look at what, that's a tiny edge case. Look at all the good we have done in this world, right? Um, uh, and so, so I, that is a parallel I always think about uh, in that. And, and 
one, you know, the whole point of that movie, right, is that the benefit, the, the benefits at scale of this system have been so great yeah. that any of the little difficulties are getting sort of brushed under the rug. Right. And that is absolutely the moment that I think we're in in so many cases where, you know, well, I, you know, I'm sorry for your difficulty, but the the vast majority of our customers have had a really great experience, you know, um, is very much the logic of scale. When you have companies whose whole point is to grow 10x, right, is the mm-hmm. thing that, the, you know, is the, is the Silicon Valley a bit of investment wisdom, right? You, when you're trying to 10x something, when you're trying to make the next Uber, you know, the little edge cases don't matter, right? But when we're talking here about, you know, if we really are, and, and, and you can see in the investments of the federal government and other places, the deep desire to create something as wonderful as being able to spot a red ball, right, to pr- do predictive crime. I mean, you know, the Transportation Safety Administration put a billion and a half dollars into something called Spot that was supposed to predict which person going through a TSA line should get hauled out of line because they looked sweaty, right? They looked suspicious. Mm-hmm. That system was shown to be based on nothing. Yeah, there's it no evidence random. that it actually had yeah, uh, it did. reliability. That's right. Yeah. But, but we went down that road for years because the deep desire for that is so strong. So again, it's mm-hmm. that desire to outsource our decisions to uh, uh, you know external systems um, boy, is that irresistible. And so Minority Report, I think, got that very right. Yeah. And, and although its its mechanism for that was the the precogs, right? People with this mutant-like ability yes. to see the future. Um, essentially, that is no different from an advanced pattern recognition software where yes. we don't know why it's making those decisions. We don't know. They're just floating in this tank. Might and as well. We don't understand. It's just amazing. Just keep them fed. Might as well That's be. Right. But- <laughs> Um, in Star Wars, you had two different kinds of droids that, that to me play an interesting role here. One is the astromech, the R2-D2 type, who sometimes in the movies takes independent action. Obviously, there's some kind of pattern recognition there where the robot recognizes something's happening, takes immediate action to remedy it, whether on a starfighter uh, or on a control panel in Bespin Cloud City. Um, other times, instead of doing the obvious waits for the human to say, R2, do this. Now, some of that is just literary device, but clearly that kind of robot with that kind of AI in it is capable of doing autonomous action, which has a whole lot of benefit. And yet somehow we don't see a case where one of these astromechs does the thing that would be obvious in a film of this type, because there are so many other films that do it, which is the technology we build that can do that much can do that much more to harm us. Uh, the, the second kind of droid that's obviously highlighted the most is the C-3PO type, the, the, the wise talking, sometimes right on matters of pure rationality, but right. not quite getting human emotion and human psychology, which speaks a lot to a lot of this pattern recognition software we're seeing now. So I'll just put it to the Star Wars movies in general and their portrayal of that kind of technology interacting with human beings. What strikes you as the interesting overlaps and the things that maybe they reveal about the technology that we don't see because we're living it? I think it's it's interesting. So, you know, the the as I was writing the book, um, Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, uh, uh, who's sort of a, a big centerpiece of the be- of the beginning of the book because his work with Amos Tversky is sort of the the 
underpinnings of a huge amount of, of the findings that I'm basing all this on. Anyway, he wrote a book, released a book that drove me crazy because it was, it's a book about AI and I went, oh no. And then, it, and then I read it and I was like, oh no, his argument is that AI is going to somehow make up for all of the behavioral foibles that he, he and Amos Tversky helped identify. Mm. And I was like, oh man, like this guy is not, that is not, not the clear implication the from the thinking fast and slow uh, research. And what he AI. does not, what he does not work into it. And, and I uh, uh, think this is the big thing that we have to take into account is profit. Right. So, so it is, so what's interesting about the star Wars droids is, you know, th they are, they're helpful but they're not built the way we would actually build them. So C-3PO, as you mentioned, is hugely helpful in terms of rationality, right? He says to Sam Holo, Sam Holo, Han Solo, <laughs> um, uh, you know, your chances of, of survival here is, you know, one million to one or whatever it is. And then Han Solo says, shut up, droid, you know, and never tell me the odds, you know, I'm going with my gut here, right? right. Now, the argument that I'm trying to make in the book is, is we should be using rational, judgment more often than we do when it comes to like, when you, when you buy a house or whatever it is, you should be doing the math. Mm -hmm. It's boring to do the math and the rest of it. You know, if, if C-3PO were actually built according to the principles of what Daniel Kahneman is describing in his new book, he would not be an irritating functionary mm -hmm. who interrupts at the wrong moment. He'd be as smooth as they come. Yeah. That guy would be fun to be around and make you feel good about yourself and would be tricking Han Solo into making the right choice <laughs> rather than being the sort of irritating mathematician in the background. Um, R2-D2, if you built him to be, you know, he's, I guess, closer to it because he's built sort of adorable mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the rest of it. But, but I think there is a, it is funny that those, are built as sort of pets with their foibles, you know, whatever. Whereas I think that, you know, if we get so sophisticated that we can create a, a, a ship that can jump to light speed, mm -hmm. we are definitely going to get so sophisticated that we build droids that trick us into making yes. good or bad decisions. And, and so that's my, that'd be my thing. All right. Now the droid transition to a final movie I'll ask you about, uh, Wally, -E, which oh, very, such a brilliant movie, very popular movie. Uh, there, there, there's been a lot of speculation about things with this movie, ranging from what exactly it was trying to be. Was it about climate change? Was it about human agency? Uh, who, who was the Satan character? Was it Wally, or was Wally the savior? All of this is out there, but in terms of its essential diagnosis at the beginning of the movie about what humanity has become by giving up its its choice, by giving up a lot of its agency to automated systems. What do you make of that? Oh, it's such a brilliant movie. You know, the first 45 minutes of that movie, not a word is spoken. There is not a word of dialogue. It is such a piece of art, that movie. And I think it is absolutely, for me, of all of those movies, the most dead on in terms of the risk, right? We, we by and large, right, is the name of the, of the, the super, you know, the mega, <laughs> mega company that, that has taken over all human decision-making and created ultimate convenience. And what happens to us? We lose the use of our legs, right? We can't even walk. Uh, you know, I, I just thought it was so, that was so, it's so mean, right? It's such a cruel idea, but it is so smart because yes, that's the thing. And, and, you know, that moment when, um, 
you know, everybody's little entertainment system uh, breaks, right, and blinks off and they find yeah. themselves unable to use their, you know, having to to get up out of their walkers. Um, I have a screenplay uh, in the war, like a sort of half-written screenplay um, that's very similar, but it's about um, uh, relationship management AI uh, that teaches, you know, that has a little uh, readout or a little voice in your ear telling you what to say to your friend when you see him, mm-hmm. you know, keeping the conversation going, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, basically a, a conversational coach. What happens when all of our relationships are mediated by that and then that system breaks, right? And none of us can do it. Yeah, exactly, right? Wow. So. For me, I think that that uh, Wally was a brilliant distillation of the risk of over relying on systems to make our lives more convenient, more efficient. Yeah. Well, we will end this conversation as all conversations on the Chatter Podcast with a reach into our Chatter Box to pick a random question for you. Should the U.S. Jake should the U.S. send a manned mission to Mars? Oh, <laughs> that's great. So the beginning of the book is actually all about. Uh, the incredible folly of sending human beings beyond uh, our atmosphere. I mean, it is astonishing to me that people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who built their lives on engineering and the rationality of numbers and math and the rest of it, they just have not spoken to enough astrophysicists to understand how incredibly dangerous space is, how much can kill you on the way to anywhere, uh, you know, and and when you you know there's a wonderful kind of invisible rivalry within NASA between mm-hmm. um, the Johnson Space Center and JPL in LA. So the Johnson Space Center is all about sending people into space. Right. JPL is about sending robots into space. And the JPL people, you know, they'll never say it publicly, but they say privately. They're like, "Are you kidding me? Send a human up there? Why would you do that? Yeah. We are squishy little fragile bunnies." Uh, we should not go up there. Now, I love the romanticism like anybody else, and I love to watch movies in which people are sent out into space, but whoa, dude, it is really dangerous and uh, not, you know, the math is not good uh, on that stuff. So uh, to me, to me the, the reason I start the book with it is that the whole book is about we are currently on our space station. We are on the, the ship that mm-hmm. we need to live our lives on, and we need to be careful what we do on this vessel uh, and what systems we deploy on the crew. And so, uh, anyway, I love that question. Jake, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for writing The Loop, how technology is creating a world without choices and how to fight back. Um, good luck getting out there and talking about it because this is a message a lot of people need to hear. I really appreciate your having me. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.